0: G'day, it's Huck. I just wanted to introduce you to our new podcast. It's called The Crackling, where we share the stories of Australia's best chefs, butchers, artisans and pork producers. Search for The Crackling in your favourite podcast app to subscribe and hear new episodes that will be released weekly. We'll be back with a new episode of Deep in the Weeds on Monday. In the meantime, enjoy The Crackling.
1: They're big pigs, so, you know, it's really, you have to be pretty pretty savvy to be able to use them. And again, I don't want to just be picking cuts out of an animal and going, that's what I want, you know, figure out the rest. It's up to us to take it all and use it all. Um, so that was a really big drive to, to getting the charcuterie program going so we could use, you know, the big shoulder, the big leg, all of that sort of stuff.
0: This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. We all approach learning differently. Some of us wade slowly through the ocean to analyze every detail and absorb it. Others like to throw themselves in the deep end and see if they'll sink or swim. Matt Stone is one of Australia's most celebrated chefs. He's forged a career as a champion of native ingredients and the most sustainable practices possible. But underlying it all is his appetite to explore new things and give anything a go. Now, Matt, can you uh, tell us how you first got interested in food as a kid?
1: Sure. Well, I um, as a kid, I was a pretty fussy eater. I uh, didn't make it very easy for my mother. Um, and I never really ever considered a career in the food industry as a um, as a young boy and teenager. But grow, um, living in Margaret River and not really enjoying school so much and wanting to spend a lot of time uh, at the beach, surfing and all that kind of stuff, I didn't really... Overly pay that much attention to school, and pretty quickly my parents caught on and said that I, um, you know, I was at a point that I could leave school. So they kind of encouraged me to get a job, and with no real aspirations for any sort of career other than, other than being a pro surf, which was never going to happen. Um, I ended up getting a job in a kitchen washing dishes. You're quite limited with, you know, in a, in a town that's sort of based around hospitality. You know, there's a lot of options in, in that field. So I got got a job washing dishes so I could work in the evenings and have the days free.
0: What was it like growing up in that in that town with because it's pretty amazing wineries there and producers and um, how, did you fall in love with food at a young age or was it further on in your career when once you got your hands on the tools?
1: Um, well, I kind of grew up between Perth and Margaret River we kind of moved up and down and um so i kind of it was pretty split, and we moved back to Margaret River when I was sixteen, so that's when when I sort of became less attentive at school, and um, at that stage I'd never really been overly interested in in food or wine. I, um, you know, kind of would sneak a beer here and there and stuff like that, but no over overwhelming interest. But um, it wasn't until I kind of got that job in the kitchen that I realised um, the sort of thrill of the environment, and that was at sixteen. Uh, no, sorry, that would have been around fifteen. Um, the, just the kind of thrill of the environment, the the adrenaline of service, the, the love and the care for the food, even though the restaurant I was in to start off with it wasn't by any means the best restaurant in the world, but it was, you know, a really great base to start to understand food and, and how it worked. And I kind of fell in love with it really quickly and found myself eating things I'd never eaten before, um, you know, eating an oyster for the first time eating olives you know always kind of screwed my face up at those kind of things as a, as a kid but <laughs> I just kind of took the approach that um if I want to work in this area I've just got to try everything um and now you know I've got to a point where there's not many things that I don't eat
0: so you said you sort of started doing dishes and stuff like that when did you first start cooking food and do you remember your first day when you sort of had that responsibility of preparing food in the, in that restaurant
1: yeah, it was, a, it was a restaurant called Cafe Forte, which was on the main street of Margaret River, a pretty hideous, big orange building, which no longer <laughs> exists. It's been um, demolished and there's actually a dome cafe there now, which is um, a kind of generic uh, cafe chain in Western Australia. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of washed dishes for a little while and I was pretty quickly offered an apprenticeship, which um, I never finished, uh, but uh, we'll get to that later, I guess. But yeah. Um, yeah, so I pretty quickly got thrust into it and started doing um, doing desserts actually, uh, which they weren't ex- overly extravagant. But I remember the first dessert that I had to plate because it was um, it's actually pretty cool. It was a Kwandong mousse, and back in that time, you know, native foods weren't really being used that much. And to be fair, it wasn't the world's best mousse, but it was uh, set in a martini glass, <laughs> uh, which was pretty funny. And then on top of it had a a twill that we had to cook and then bend over a a rolling pin from memory. So it had a big curve. And inside that twill sat a piece of uh, white chocolate nougat. So it was this kind of martini glass with this pinkish um, Kwandong mousse with this big curvy twill sticking out of it and a big, uh, or not a big, a piece of, of white chocolate um it was white chocolate fudge uh square sitting in the middle so you know only three things on the plate it was all kind of prepared but i just remember being really nervous and, and snapping the little twills and stuff like that but um that was the first dish i remember plating there actually
0: wow now like you've gone all the way to you know winning chef of the year in australia with your career but just briefly you just mentioned that you didn't finish your apprenticeship and i wondered if you could just uh, tell us a little bit about that
1: sure well um Being in Margaret River, um, I had to travel to Bunbury to to go to TAFE College, which was an hour away. Well, It was an hour by car, but I had to take the school bus that all the private school kids would take uh, to get to the private school in Bunbury. So it ended up taking nearly two hours by the time I went on a different route to pick up all the kids. And, you know, I found myself back in that school environment, which I didn't love. Um, I didn't actually mind the TAFE lessons themselves. Um, Mark Atkins was my lecturer, I remember him well, he was a really great guy. and I started going to the classes uh, and it ended up uh, being my day off that I had to go to the classes. So that was kind of deterring me, um, you know, and I kind of found myself in a position where I was working heaps and going to school on my day off and then had no time to go to the beach and do the, all these other things that I wanted to do. So I, I pretty quickly stopped going to TAFE um, and kind of lied about it to my employer for a while. Uh, they caught on and they and then they kind of said, look, you know what, um, it's up to you. We, we don't pay you for that. We need you in the restaurant. So, you know, if you want to go or not, that's up to you, which was probably not the best advice from them at the time. But um, I just put my head down and worked really hard. And then, um, uh, and then yeah, that was that first kind of job. And that was, yeah, when I realized I didn't really want to go to TAFE.
0: Now you've sort of carved a career as a kind of eco-warrior and I know you probably don't like to call yourself that, but the media certainly has. And I just wonder where that journey sort of started for you, where you'd learned to cook and then this sort of genuine interest in, um, in sort of not only native ingredients in Australia, but also about the environment and our role with that.
1: Yeah, well, you know, from um, from that cafe, I uh, I went back up to Perth and worked in a a pretty average pub in in the suburbs in Perth, uh, which wasn't um, great. But again, you learn things in every every job. And from there, I went back down to Margaret River again and I cooked at Lewin Estate Winery. And that's where I kind of started to learn about produce being the key, you know, like using really great local stuff, you know, understanding that you can buy things directly from a farmer, uh, growing a small amount of things there ourselves as well. Uh, that kind of got everything happening there, and then from there I went to a restaurant in in Perth again called Star and East, which um, has been closed for a long time now. But um, you know, at, at, at its at its peak, you know, we we'll, are you know right up there with restaurants in Perth and and restaurants in Australia cooking you know fine dining, pretty Asian inspired food. Uh, and working with David there, I really learnt a lot about technique um, and ingredients, which was really important. And so I kind of started to want to. Start cooking with the tastiest ingredients, and I always came, you know, I always found the tastiest ingredients were always the most ethically produced ingredients. Um, so it came came from fla- chasing flavour more than anything else. I think, um, you know, when you when you taste a tomato that's just being picked and never refrigerated, and you eat it, you know, you can understand that because you know you don't have to manipulate the flavour. Um, and they're generally, if someone's taking that much care to get a product to you like that, you know, to a in a city restaurant then they're doing a pretty ethical job, you know, I think. So, yeah, it was all based on flavour, really.
0: Was there any standout dishes from your time at Star and Ace? I mean, it's a, you know, legendary restaurant from Perth um, and you did spend some quality time there to sharpen uh, your focus in the in your career.
1: Um, yeah, I think, I mean, there was a lot of dishes that, that really stood out to me from that restaurant and, you know, I was there for five years nearly. So we went through a journey of, of different cuisines. Um, and it was at that time when, you know, Australian food was very, uh, heavily influenced with Asian cuisine. And then it was at that tipping point when Spanish food became really popular. So we sort of, sort of moved a little, a little bit that way, which seemed kind of weird, you know, on, on one, on one menu we'd have things like come on a with, you know, a, a maho, you know, a, a, a Thai spiced stir fry. So it was um pretty interesting, but that, that maho dish for me was, was something that stands out to me. Um, david Kumar, who was my mentor there he was friends with david thompson and david thompson would come and do dinners with us pretty often um so i remember cooking thai food with him and not that he really gave us time of day because you know he's, he's i was just the the young grunt in the kitchen at the time and he was never rude or anything but you know it's always you know kind of hanging out with david and that kind of stuff but um you know david's thai cookery david Kumar's thai cookery was also very good and um this one dish that was on the menu the whole time was it was a mahor, which is kind of a, a stir-fry of mince um, or, or, or braised meat. Um, so we did a version with slightly green pineapple, and it was really important that the pineapple was slightly green. Otherwise, the whole dish was too sweet and out of balance. Um, on top of that would sit a stir-fry of poached ducknecks. And if you've ever seen a duckneck or cooked it, you realize there's very little meat on them. Um, so we had to poach the ducknecks in a broth of uh, water, star anise, white pepper and fish sauce, pick all of the meat and then break it down into portions. And then from there we'd make a paste of chilies, garlic, coriander roots, uh, and then stir fry that, caramelise some palm sugar, add the picked duckneck meat back into it, and then season it with some uh, nam jim, some lime and some fish sauce. And that was The stir-fry, that was the base. You have to make that in the afternoon as part of the mise en place. Uh, And then for the service, you have your little diamonds of pineapple. The duck would be reheated in a pan, put on top. And then a perfectly seared, a Island scallop would sit on top of that. Then there was some chiffonade of mint, uh, some crispy fried shallots, and a single perfect Julienne slice of red chili on top of that. And there was four pieces per serve. So there was a lot of elements. Um but it was one of the one of those dishes I'll always remember because the balance of seasonings was so important that if anything wasn't right, the dish wouldn't be right. And um so I guess I kind of think about that balance of seasoning a lot still today of, you know, sweet sour you know, bitter because you push the sugar to the edge um, and umami from fish sauce and stuff like that. So, you know, those f- sort of fundaments of cooking, although I don't cook Asian food anymore in the restaurant, a little bit kind of creeps in here and there in our own sort of way, I guess. But those fundaments of seasoning have stuck with me with everything that I make now.
0: Yeah, right. So from from those times, um, where did you head to? And because I know you worked with Juice Baker, well, on many projects. Um, but they they started over there in Perth. Can you give us an idea of kind of how that connection happened and then that sort of eco journey started for you?
1: Sure. Well, I um, you know I worked with David for a long time, and then I uh, David and I uh, and Kurt Simpson, who's a chef in Perth still, his restaurant's Propeller still going now, which is really great. Uh, the three of us went into a partnership and opened a restaurant called Patanegra, Um at the peak of that Spanish sort of craze uh, through Australia. Um, the business was really successful, going really well. I was quite naive in business, you know, so I probably didn't get the right contracts in place and I was pretty quickly sort of brought out of the business when it was doing really well. So, it kind of lasted from memory around six months, uh, which was pretty hard as a a young guy, um, particularly with someone that, you know, you really trusted. Um, And, you know, it's not a problem now, you know, David and I talk and all that kind of stuff, but at the time it was a pretty big deal and I was pretty disgruntled with, with the whole industry and, um, you know, everything I knew had just changed overnight. So I, um, had the option to keep working, but I, I declined that. And, you know, I kind of looked at other careers. I looked at, um, at laboring, all this kind of stuff. I can't do any of that stuff. So I, um, I just took a job that I never really wanted at a place called, what was it called? Um, it was in the city. It was called bar one. Uh, and Steve Manfredi, who was a kind of legendary, uh, Hospitality guy in Perth in that day. I'm not sure if he's still around. He um, had this place called Bar One, which was in the city. It was you know Italian restaurant, busy. You know, hundred to hundred and fifty covers a service, pumping out prawn linguinis and stuff like that. All delicious food, but nothing I ever connected with. Um, so I just took a job there, and um, I was I took a job as a sous chef cooking food I didn't know anything about and a cuisine that I didn't know anything about, but it was still came back to the fundaments, you know, good knife work, good produce and balancing seasoning. So I got away with it for a while. Uh, And at that stage I got contacted by a crazy Dutch bastard called Joost Bakker to to do the greenhouse project. And, you know, Joost kind of gave me the spiel, you know, this um, cube that's built from recycled or recyclable materials covered in plants serving food made from scratch. And I thought that sounds so ridiculous like that could never work like that's just stupid mate I don't know and you know coming from the fine dining background of Star Anise and East and even Bar 1 was pretty pretty ritzy um I thought no nah, that's just silly that's just not going to work uh so I declined his offer without even meeting him and then I kind of sat on it for a little while and I thought oh, you know I wasn't loving cooking at Bar 1 uh for no fault of theirs it just wasn't me it was just big and what I thought was a little bit kind of for me soulless I didn't connect with it Uh, So I called Yost back uh, two weeks later and he said, I've been waiting for this call, uh, which was pretty funny. Um, And I said, look, let's have a chat. And uh, he booked me a flight to Melbourne, uh, I think two days after that. And I flew to Melbourne. uh, I met Yost at, uh, I think, around 3.30 or 4 a.m. in the morning uh, for his flower run. And I spent the day with Yost uh, installing flowers in Melbourne's iconic restaurants that a lot of, I'd only ever, well, all of them, I'd only ever sort of read about um, and, and heard about but never actually had the chance to step foot in and I found myself doing their flower installations for a day, <laughs> which was which was pretty funny. And so, yeah, Yost and I just hit it off. We really connected. Um, I agreed to get on board and, you know, we opened the Greenhouse berth and that was uh, just over 10 years ago,
0: actually, that we opened that restaurant. What, what was that experience like for you, you know, with that restaurant?
1: Um, it was phenomenal. And, you know, I still think it was a little bit crazy that Yost um, put so much trust in me. You know, I was a 21-year-old guy that had never been a head chef. And I was given, you know, the opportunity to run a world-changing, revolutionary, humongous restaurant in the middle of the city. Um, and I kind of took the approach of I'm just going to say yes to everything and I'll, I'll work it out. You know, Yost was like, we're going to have to mill grain to make bread. And I was like, sure. Never done it before. I didn't say that, but I just, <laughs> said, yeah, sure. No worries. Um, and we just kind of trial and error. And, you know, I had um, an amazing sous chef, Courtney Gibb, who he's a baker now uh, for Mary street bakery, which is a, a, a great um, bakery in, in Mount Lawley. They've got a couple in Perth now. Um, And he came from uh, he to to join me. So um, he and I just kind of took the attitude of we'll just say yes and and figure it out. So we're doing things that we'd never even heard about before. You know, I didn't even know you could mill your own flour uh, until kind of Yost introduced that stuff to me. And, you know, we, we kind of took a lot of inspiration from proven primitive techniques. So, you know, we weren't creating new techniques. We're just using old techniques that had been, you know, forgotten or not used for a long time um and there was a lot of trial and error we nearly we nearly killed ourselves we were working stupid amounts of hours and that wasn't forced upon us we chose to do that because we just wanted to and we wanted to make it work um and yeah we managed to get the restaurant open and then people liked it which was cool and then you know sort of we got some accolades from there which was which was pretty awesome but that kind of set up the fundaments for sort of you know the next 10 years of my cooking career.
0: Do you have any uh, stories of um, of the challenges involved in like learning these new skills and you know sticking to these sort of um, techniques and honouring them?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it's pretty scary when you you do your first bake of bread uh, when you're going to open for uh, for breakfast in two days and it's freshly milled, one hundred percent, and it comes out like a like a the hardest rock scone that you've ever imagined, um, and you kind of shit yourself a bit and go. Holy shit, we've got like two days to make something that I can serve eggs on. Uh, and I'd never cooked a breakfast service either at this stage. Um, and I think that kind of worked. Our breakfast was really, really popular because I, it was it didn't come from a breakfast chef mentality. It was more of a, uh, a savory chef's kind of take on what is breakfast, which was really cool. But um, yeah, the bread thing was a really big thing. Uh, And the idea of fermenting vegetables was so foreign to me, like I'd used fermented foods in in lots of various ways through my previous years of cookery, things like, um, you know, shrimp paste, fish sauce, soy sauce, beer, all of these sort of things. So the flavors weren't foreign, but producing them was. Uh, And again, you know, you just kind of do some research. And, you know, at that time, there was a lot less literature around these things. And there was a lot less chef communication. That was still a time when chefs weren't sharing ideas like they are now. So you kind of we we're just blind and just trying to figure it out. And, you know, to, to, I'd done a lot of sous vide cooking up until that point and to have to stop doing that because of the plastic waste, you know, you've got to almost reteach yourself to cook again, uh, which was pretty interesting, particularly when the restaurant's really big and, you know, you're breaking down whole animals and serving cuts and trying to remember how to cook them and all that kind of stuff. So that was a big one, but just kind of teaching myself all of those things and I found myself from having a, a serious mentor for a long time and still being a really young chef I was 21 at this stage uh, with no mentor and becoming the mentor for the people working around me so that was a really big change as well.
0: Has, has that affected you throughout your career like sort of having so much responsibility so young do you think that's uh, changed the direction for what you've done in the last 10 years or, or directed you in the last 10 years?
1: Um, I guess I was really lucky to have those 5 years under under David and that really set me up I think. Um I think it's really important to spend time with young cooks uh and training them and, and educating them but I've been extremely lucky like my throughout my career I've I've had great opportunities. I've got to cook you know from there uh in Melbourne and then Sydney. Uh I've got to do stages all around the world. Uh, I've done a lot of work for Tourism Australia around the world. Uh, I've done you know every food festival you can imagine across Australia from Cairns down to Tassie across to to Broome to Margaret River you know so I've had a lot of great opportunities and I've always made a point to to really do a lot of research and whenever I have had the chance to be around chefs I aspire to just asking questions and and annoy them and uh, and just you know kind of give them time and let them talk and really absorb that um and being the younger guy don't be cocky don't talk about what you've done and what you're going to do just 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 step back and just listen and I think you can learn a lot from people that way
0: you know you're sort of talking about all of the different things that you've you've done and it it would be extraordinary to try and list them you know just the ones that I know um since I've since I met you but there was one that I think was uh quite interesting was that you challenged Neil Perry on Iron Chef Australia can you tell us a bit about that experience
1: that was pretty wild um yeah so i was 21 years old and i got asked to go on iron chef go on telly i was like wow that's so cool um and having watched you know the japanese iron chef and the american iron chef and it was pretty pretty cool that you know i had this opportunity and i ended up doing the first the the premiere episode as well which was pretty wild um but it was funny so i've it was myself at 21 it was daniel dobra who who's done a lot of stuff around melbourne uh, he'd come from working with dan hunter at the royal mail uh to working with me at the greenhouse and my younger brother jake stone who is a plumber now but was a chef at the time Uh, and he was 19 so you know it was us young guys 21 two guys at 21 a guy at 19 uh versing neil perry phil wood and ben pollard (laughs) which is um you know ben now heads up supernormal and a lot of andrew mcconnell's operations phil obviously is extremely known across our industry from working with neil and uh working at point leo estate so you know experience beyond my years uh which we came up against but um yeah we gave it a red hot crack um, i cut myself in the first like two minutes uh, i had to get bandaged up which was pretty funny um and yeah it was pretty crazy i'd never been in that environment before but we just cooked food that we we believed in uh that we knew we could make really tasty and we we didn't beat him but we came pretty close
0: well that's pretty honorable I mean, he's a pretty handy and influential chef Absolutely, Neil's
1: um, and you know, I've been lucky enough to know Neil for for quite a few years from those early days of the greenhouse because Neil and Yost have been, you know, really great friends for a very long time. So you know, I've got a lot of mentorship from Neil through the years, although never working for him, he's given me lots of great advice. Uh, he's made restaurant bookings for me in places around the world that I never would have got into. Um, you know, he's been a really great sort of person to, to look up to. And I think what Neil's done for Australian food is uh, second to none. You know, he, he was at the forefront of that Pan-Asian thing through the time uh, when I was at Star East and that was a thing, um, you know, now to running the steakhouses and, and, you know, using some of the best beef in Australia and all that kind of stuff. I think Neil's someone that's, you know, has, has changed the, the the footprint of what Australian food is for sure.
0: What do you see as, as Australian food now? Because you've been a leader in that in the last at least five years to a decade, even though you are still so young. Um, but what what is Australia's food identity? And you really explore a lot of the native ingredients, which can be a challenge at times to, to use, uh, but you've tended to master them.
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, it all comes back to that flavor balance that I talked about earlier. And, you know, it's about balancing you know, the astringency and tart- tartness that you find in a lot of uh, native foods. Uh, but that's mostly in the fruits. Um, you know you find a lot of floral notes in the herbs uh, and when we look at native meats you know they have a deep rich gamey flavor as well which pairs perfectly with those astringent uh, sour flavors so so that's one thing but what is Australian food now for me Uh, and this is something that I really believe in I think you know in the last 200 or so years of of colonization of Australia we've been influenced from you know culinary rich uh, cultures from around the world you know there's In every city, pretty much, there's a deep Italian, uh, Greek, um, you know, there's a lot of French culture around. uh, Then there's all of the Asian cultures that we we have, you know, Chinese, Vietnamese, uh, Japanese, all of this stuff. So we're surrounded by a lot of different food cultures. So we can learn a lot of different techniques um, and a lot of different cookery methods from all of them. Uh, we have an abundant land that can grow and produce anything that anyone in the world can. You know, the fact that you can grow a truffle and a mango on neighbouring farms in this in this country is fucking phenomenal. Um, and then we have, you know, 60,000 plus years of, of Australian history. Um, so, you know, all of these things add up to making a really exciting food culture. And I think we really, we're really finding that now. I think, you know, we've been had a lot of great restaurants for a long time. But I think until this um, pandemic came along, we are on a really good trajectory to making, you know, the most exciting food in the world. And I get to travel a lot. I do a few international trips every year. I travel around Australia. Um, and I, when, I, when I'm when i away, I can't wait to get back for Australian food. You know, I think we have some of the best food in the world.
0: Now, I know that you like to connect with, you know, local producers and champion them and um, you have done in, you know, many of your restaurants. Um, but I think it was a trip to Spain that you first sort of really fell in love with pork. Can you tell us a bit about that and understand you're also, since then, Chancing your arm on making your own charcuterie.
1: Yeah, well, I first went to Spain in two thousand and eight. It was my first um, first trip there, and I just ate so much jamón that I, um, I I nearly I nearly made myself sick. It was um, it was a real life changing moment for me to to see you know the respect of, a, of of a of an animal that is so deep and so who so such a part of a culture um, and so much love going into every element of you know, from that pig being born to me eating it in a tapas bar, you know, in a, in a little pinch loss bar in San Sebastian. So I kind of, that really made me realize, you know, the, the cultural connection to food, I think. Um, and yeah, just loving, you know, cured meats. And we do a lot of, I've always done whole animal butchery. And when you're dealing with you know, a beautiful, ethically raised pig that's had a really great life and had had a great feed and had a great time, Um, and you get a half a pig in the restaurant, it's really difficult to use all of that pig. And that's why charcuterie is, is such a great way of using everything because there's only so many sort of cuts I can take out of that for a main course in the restaurant. But there's a lot of stuff that I can turn into a salami, turn into a lomo, turn into a prosciutto, all of those kind of things. So it kind of the idea of charcuterie making came for us from whole animal butchery and wanting to, to use absolutely everything to the to the best of its um ability. And it also comes down to a cost thing as well. Like these products are expensive, so I need to get maximum value out of them. And if I can make a few salamis, get a few roasts, do a few uh, broths, all that kind of stuff, then I can make it add up.
0: What's some of the challenges involved in making charcuterie and getting it right?
1: it's really vulnerable um, and it's really hard because it takes a long time to, you know, that you've made a mistake. Um, So we've got a really good program going at the restaurant now, but it's taken at least two years to get it running to a point that we can serve all of our own charcuterie. You know, you can make things like terrines pretty easily, uh, briettes pretty easily, even mortadellas pretty, pretty quick to turn around. But when it comes to aged uh, uh, air dried charcuterie, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And, you know, we've, been making a lot of uh brisola we've been making great lomo which is a cured loin of pork or lonza depends where you come from um and then a whole array of different salamis um and we've even been doing a a blended salami of kangaroo and pork which is really great because you know wanting to use native ingredients we wanted to make a kangaroo um, salami i were told it would never work um and on its own it wouldn't but we use 50 percent pork in it and that balances and brings the fat to it which is really phenomenal so, yeah, I think, um, and it's just, it's hygiene is a really big part of it. You know, you have to be super, super clean, super sterile with all of your equipment. Um, and we were just using the, the wine cellar at the restaurant, wow. uh, which people could come and go from. And, you know, it's really hard to you know, stop people from seeing, a, you know, a dozen beautiful looking salamis hanging in a wine cellar from going up and giving them a poke and a squeeze. Um, so you know, there was a lot of things that were beyond our control, but then we sort of made the call and invested in some proper uh, charcuterie refrigeration. Uh, and that's just taken it to the next level for us. Having a controlled environment that we can control the temperature, the humidity, and and make sure everything's nice and safe. Um, that gave us the chance to up the production to a point that we could serve all of our own charcuterie.
0: Now, this is um, Oak Ridge, a restaurant which has, you know, won a lot of awards and you've won um, Chef of the Year there and uh, your partner, Joe Barrett, has won many awards as well. Like, you're a pretty incredible duo. Do you want to tell us what it's like working together and what you were doing at the restaurant, um, you know, before the current situation of the pandemic?
1: Sure. Well, it's um it's great, you know, get to work with my best mate, which is awesome. Um, I think we Joe and I are really lucky because we have the same goal but very different skill sets. Um you know in her own right Joe's an amazing savory cook. Um she's qualified in both savory cookery and and, and pastry. Um so you know she's a, she's an overachiever that's for sure. But um you know coming together to be able to 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 run a restaurant across the board from everything from the garden to managing the staff to from the sweet to the savoury to the to the beverage offering in the restaurant to how we want the service to work, you know, being being in a team with the same goal uh, makes it possible. Uh, you know, I can I can rest assured that you know the the same things that I'm doing up one end of the kitchen are happening down the other end of the kitchen, and I think you know intuitively we communicate really well just because you know we live together, work together. So you know, Jo's a really great people manager. She's really great at sort of getting the best out of people which has been a really great skill that i've learned from her instead of you know getting grumpy and um and making situations more difficult than they have to be you know kind of talking to people asking why something went wrong do you need more support you know that she's really she's really brought me to a really mature place i think um as a leader in the kitchen which has been really phenomenal um and yeah i just think sharing that common goal of wanting to do everything ourselves you know we we don't want to use anything in the restaurant that we can't make, you know, and that even comes down to now we make a lot of, a lot of garum, which is a fermented meat sauce, uh, from off cuts from the animals. So instead of getting that umami rich flavor from soy sauce or fish sauce, you know, we've got it from a product that would have been wasted that we've created ourselves, you know, from everything from sporing the, the koji bacteria onto a grain to, to grinding down the meat scraps to fermenting it, you know, and these are flavors that just blow your mind. They're phenomenal in their depth. Um, you know, so, from that and then you know milling grain to make flour to make bread that we give away for nothing um you know that's a pretty big process uh in itself um you know making cheese you know uh, we uh, we we have an amazing cheese program that joe heads up i don't really do much of the cheese making i do a bit of the basic stuff from time to time but all of the more in-depth stuff joe does and that all came from for two reasons um tyrone our local dairy farmer who is an amazing guys i think he's up to 14 jersey cows now all on all on um pasture that um you know they never eat any grain or anything else uh the calves are left with the mothers so we lose you know a lot of milk goes to them that way um we get it in a system where we generate no waste so it comes to us in vats they go back and forth um and, but the milk is very expensive, you know, we're talking like four or $5 a litre uh, that's at a wholesale price. Cause it's, it's phenomenal and he deserves it because he needs that money to farm in that way. Um, so I'm not, I'm, I'm happy to pay the right price to keep farmers going to do the right thing. And then it's up to me to figure out how I b- manage that. Uh, and the best way for us, you know, it's probably not putting that milk into a coffee. It's more so value added things like cheese making. So, at the time of this sort of, you know, getting to know Tyrone and the dairy and working out what to do, we had a, a chef named Colin Wood who was working with us, a friend of mine from Perth, who um, he was waiting for a visa to go to America uh, to become the development chef for Ignazio at Estella and, and their group, which is an amazing restaurant in New York. Um, so he came to us for six weeks and ended up being with us for around six months, <laughs> waiting for the visa, which was great. Um, so he had an interest in cheesemaking already. Uh, he was good friends with Richard Thomas, who set up Yarra Valley Dairy. Um, so he kind of started the cheese program for us. Uh, and then once he left, uh, Joe took it over and there's now, you know, she's done some uh, some cheese make, natural cheesemaking courses, which have been really phenomenal for her and some other cheesemaking sort of stuff. And now she's, you know, running a program where we're making fresh ricotta, fresh mozzarella, fresh burrata. Uh, we make phenomenal brie. That's our cheese serving for our tasting menu. Uh, some alpine cheeses, like some toms. She's made some blue cheeses. She's got a cheddar uh, on the go. You know, like really sophisticated cheeses. Cheeses that um I never would have imagined making in the restaurant, but it's um phenomenal. But that whole process came about from wanting to help a producer and, and showcase a producer, which is fantastic.
0: And it, and it sounds like that everything that's happening in the restaurant is like that. And there was something back there that you said about the security and you know getting. The whole animal in. Um, you'd work with a local pig producer to get that whole animal and can you tell us a bit about that producer and also you know how important the relationships are with your local growers and producers?
1: Yeah, well, Yarra Valley Berkshire's is, is amazing. Uh, we use um, pork from a few different producers, um, Bunda, Bundara as well. Uh, we buy a lot of pork from, but Yarra Valley Berkshire's is our predominant one. Um, and they're awesome. They're Berkshire pigs that are fed on spent uh, botanicals from Four Pillars Gin as part of their feed. So, you know, it's a, it's a real great community thing. You know, Four Pillars Gin's up the road from us. We have a really great friendship with them. They they created an amazing product and have brought a whole another level of tourism to our region, which is fantastic. Um, but they also have a really great ethos. So, you know, apart from us using a bit of their stuff, um, Matt Wilkinson obviously works for them and on development and things. So he works with value adding to their byproduct. But um, the, the pig farm is, is awesome. So, you know, all of the, the leftover goodies get taken to the pig farm as well as some other feed, of course. The pigs eat that. But then they're grown uh, they're grown out so they're big pigs um, so you know it's really you have to be pretty pretty savvy to be able to use them and again I don't want to just be picking cuts out of an animal and going that's what I want you know figure out the rest it's up to us to take it all and use it all um, so that was a really big drive to, to getting the charcuterie program going so we could use you know the big shoulder the big leg all of that sort of stuff.
0: Do you have any um, dishes from your past that have been influential that you know um sort of have defined you or steered you in a certain direction Uh, in terms of that i've cooked or yeah
1: um no i kind of not really i kind of change a lot with dishes i really like you know we never have anything on the menu for too long um i change what i'm into all the time um you know often so often we get asked what's your signature dish and i go "I i don't know i don't have one um because i I always kind of try to cook from a place and cook with the with the moment um so I think you know there 's like for our food at the restaurant we have a humongous garden, so we have <clears throat> excuse me, we have lots of herbs, lots of flowers, lots of you know leafy bits on our food because that 's what we have there and then so when i 've been on the road you know cooking at festivals and events and stuff, and you you try to replicate your food from the restaurant and you order all of this stuff and then you get there and you can see twenty plastic punnets of flowers and, and leaves and stuff, you go, Shit, this isn't it, this just doesn't work. And then it the dish doesn't taste the same because, you know, they the ingredients don't have the same vibrancy in life. So, you know, now when I travel to cook I whatever chefs hosting me or someone that I'm you know is looking after me I say what's what's the food of the area what's a tell me what is a great product and I'll make a dish from that they go oh no no just make a dish from the restaurant I go no that doesn't work like that for me because it's never going to be as good and I, I hate to say you know at the restaurant this is the dish you know when I'm away so you know our restaurants are destination and people travel there and I think what we cook there is very special. So, when I'm cooking on the road, I try to connect with local producers and growers and chefs in the area um, to 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 do my version of a, a dish from 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 their area. You know an example is a few years ago I went down to, to Hobart to cook for a sustainable film festival. And we got connected with some great producers. Uh, to be honest, I can't remember a couple of them. Um but that's when I met Adam James from Rough Rice, and he's a guy who does amazing fermentation of misos and vegetables and things like that um And I was at the time he had a cafe, and I was taken to meet him because I wanted some, you know, some cool local stuff. And the lady hosting me was like, All right, come and meet Adam. And so I went to his cafe, we had breakfast, and then By the afternoon, I was in his backyard having a beer and tasting these phenomenal misos and and ferments that I never knew existed or things I didn't, you know, I'd only ever read about but never seen. Uh, And he loaded me up with all of this stuff, and that was the base of my meal, you know, so that kind of thing. That's how I like to cook. So, in terms of signature, I've gone way off the question there, but in terms of signature dishes, no, not really. I think it's more a style of cookery. Is
0: there any um, pork dishes that have stood out through your career um, or ways to cook pork? perhaps, uh, that, um, that you prefer that gets the best out of a certain cut?
1: Uh, well, I think um, uh, like aging pork has been something that we've done a lot of cool stuff with at the restaurant. You know, when you hang an animal – in the right environment and let it dry out and let it relax. I think you get a much better product. I think for me, a really big thing is understanding pork crackle, understanding why it goes crunchy. You know, you've got to you've got to dry it out. You've got to sort of get all of that moisture condensed down, and then you've got to hit it with fat to explode open, uh, with heat to explode open again, um, to get a pork crackle. So I think, you know, in terms of you know, growing as a cook, when you start to understand how and why things happen, cooking becomes easier. I think the time in my career when I realized that, you know, you've got to dry your pork skin out and why to get a crackle, I think that's a turning point. So even if it's at home when you're cooking and you've got a beautiful piece of pork belly or pork shoulder or whatever you might have, you know, leave that that cut of meat uncovered in your fridge for two days. Um, You don't need to salt it. You don't need to add anything to it. Just make sure it's got a little bit of airflow around it um and let it dry out and you, and what that does it condenses flavor it condenses moisture and you, you end up with a much better product
0: in the end and is there a special way to cook it like a lot of people this like like to do slow roasting um really fast like what's what's your preference
1: uh it really depends on the on the um on the cut. I think if I'm cooking like a beautiful rack of pork, um you know, I'd do it on the weather, uh with some, some wood and, and some charcoal and I like to in that case what I would do is I would let it dry out, as I mentioned. Um, then when I'm gonna cook it I'd score the skin, I'd salt the whole thing nicely, uh and I'd cook it on the flesh side first at a at a sort of lowish temp. So I'd get my coals going, get it up to, you know, around hundred and fifty degrees kind of thing. So not too hot but not too cold. Uh, and then I kind of cook it slowly from the, the bone side and the flesh side of the rack. Um, and then as it, it comes up to a nice temp, what's happening through that time is that the skin's kind of drying out in, the, in that sort of Weber environment as well. Um, so that's kind of getting nice and nice and dry. And then at the end of the cook, I'll kind of open the vents to the Weber and put the skin side down uh, so that the heat will kind of kind of get hotter really quickly because of that extra oxygen that you put into the Weber. Uh, and then you you can put the skin side down, and that heat that explosion of heat will bubble your crackle and make it go really nice. so I think that's quite a quite a nice technique
0: sounds amazing
1: yeah and um i um, I definitely don't work for weber I'm just in my backyard looking at it right now but <laughs> <laughs> any any uh slow cooking charcoal barbecue situation that you have can do that.
0: Now, I know in this sort of strange little time that we're in right now, this little bubble, you've, uh, before your restaurant reopens, uh, you've been working as a butcher. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and has it changed your views on anything to do with um, produce?
1: Um, no, it hasn't. So I'm working at a butcher that's uh, really ethical. Uh, all of the products are free-range or organic, which is fantastic. Um, you know, there's no polystyrene trays. that The meat goes on. Like, it's all very ethical, but – it's made me realize that uh, the butchery we do in the restaurant quite advanced. Um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff out of boxes these days and that's due to a lot of reasons, um, affordability, time, all of that sort of stuff. And it's made me realize that people are really particular with cuts of meat. Um, I haven't done a lot of work on the counter. I'm mostly at the back portioning. I portion a lot of steaks at the moment, um, which is kind of fun. I kind of get great satisfaction when you hit a Scotchy, you know, bang on 250, which is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> The, the little things that get you through the day. Um, but no, I think it's made me realize that um, we're really lucky in our environment that we can, we've managed to be able to, you know, on our menu, say for pork and lamb, um, that all I've ever – and that's using whole animals. I've never said a cut, not once at Oak Ridge. It just reads lamb or or pork or um, sometimes I say pig. It just depends on what we're doing. Um, and people have that trust just to go, sure, I have that, not knowing what cut it is. And I reckon in five years at the restaurant, we've probably only been asked – Less than half a dozen times. What cut is it today? People just go for it. Whereas in the butcher, in the butcher, people have exactly what they want in their mind. You know, I um, I was dealing with a customer the other day that wanted beef cheeks, and we didn't have any beef cheeks. And I said, look, we've got this beautiful oyster blade that you'll get a really similar result from. She, oh no, no, no. The recipe says beef cheeks. I'm like, oh, and look, she didn't know that I was a chef, so she's probably like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, <laughs> but people are so so set in their ways of what they want with meat. Um. And when if you're breaking down a whole lamb uh, at, um, you know, the amount of lamb chops that get sold through this place, the amount of pork chops that get sold through this place in comparison to the other cuts, it doesn't balance. So that's why I kind of have started to understand why there's less and less whole animal butchery happening in butcher shops um, because people, um, you know, are really set in their way. And to be fair, I am in a butcher shop in a really – Uh, sort of wealthy area uh, that I'm working. So that, I guess, might change things as well. But, um, you know, you could never, from what I've seen in the sort of month that I've been working there, it would be so hard to find a balance of selling a whole animal.
0: Now, obviously, the butchering is a sort of a stopgap for you at the moment, Um, and it's a bit of a crazy world that we're living in. You know, what do you think people are going to want to eat when they come out of the other side of this pandemic?
1: Um. I think healthy and nutritious food more than ever. I think people are, you know, all you have to do is open Instagram at the moment to see how many people are cooking at home, which is awesome. Um, But things, you know, people fermenting vegetables, people making uh, kombucha, people making sourdough bread, people, people looking for nutrient rich food. I think people, this has been a really big shakeup in so many ways, you know, so, so many ways, but, I think it's made people more conscious of health and well-being more than ever. Um, So I think restaurants that are serving fresh food, uh, not processed food, food that is fermented, uh, food that is representative of an area, uh, and food that is ethical is going to come out on top after this for sure.
0: Is it going to change what you do?
1: Uh, I'll be honest. I don't really know how it's going to look from here, mate. So I think uh, the Australian food industry is so like tourism is so important for it. And I think when this ends, there's going to be a massive rush of people getting out and going to restaurants. Um, but that won't sustain it for too long. I don't think this is just my opinion. Um, you know, I think tourism, the opening of tourism is going to be a really pinnacle part to our industry coming back because, you know, where I am at my restaurant, the restaurant's 80% full of tourists most of the time. Um, So that's going to be a really hard one to, uh, to, you know. And I think people they'll be will be travelling internally for a while, which is great. Again, you know, like the second I can, I'm going to fly to Perth to see my parents, see my brother, and see my niece. And I'll I'll go directly to Lulu Delizia and have a pasta. I'll go to Rebel and see Liam and Sarah and have some French food and some wine. And you know, that'll happen a bit as well. Uh, And people will go to their local restaurants, but. I think that's only got a, 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 a sh, you know a, a sort of shelf life on it as well, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I just see I just see it really hard for my restaurant to get back to the numbers we were doing without tourism. And even when tourism does open again, it's going to take a couple of years till we get the inbound Chinese tourism that we've relied on for so long. Uh, the U.S. tourism, which isn't huge but is high value, uh, because the people that are coming from America have money and they they're pretty happy to spend it because their dollars good here. Um, so I think you know it's gonna be a different landscape for a while for a couple of years i think um and i i, I really worry for restaurants, particularly high end restaurants that you know I'm pretty lucky i I don't have children i you know was earning pretty good money, so I would eat in restaurants a lot um but that's changed uh and I think we'll do it once, but you know the high end restaurants are really gonna i I don't, I don't i don't I just don't know how how it's gonna look you know you know you look you look at how admirational Ben Shuri has been to at Attica with what he's doing. Um, but will he be able to bring Attica back straight away? I don't know. Like if anyone can, it'd be him for sure. Cause he's just a, a stubborn dude that just will never give up, which is phenomenal and inspirational. Um, but who knows? Like we just, I just don't know the landscape from here. So it's um, you know, will restaurants open and, close and fold again? Will, will restaurants have to change? Like what is a restaurant anymore? I don't know.
0: You know some of what you said in that, was about that sort of connection and that sort of comfort food. And is there any go-to dishes that you have that you think, you know, would suit this climate that we might end up in when the restaurants do open again?
1: Uh, um, yes and no. I think uh, for me, broth is a, is a universal soup that, um, you know, There's in, in pretty much every culture in the world, there's an element of chicken broth. Uh, be it you know like Croatian food where it's a you know the diced up veggies from the stock put back in the broth eaten with a dumpling at the start of the meal or you know a pasta in brado in Italy that's you know an orichetti or a little filled pasta in a roasted chicken broth or if it's a some noodles from from you know China or Vietnam that's in a, in a chicken broth so I think those kind of things are universally loved and warming um, so you know I think those kind of things will always have their place. Um, but in terms, I, I don't know. I think people will be wanting to eat, like, ethical produce, uh, fermented foods. I think uh, vegetable-based uh, dining is going to become bigger than ever. Um, so, you know, the idea of using smaller amounts of meats with as a flavor in a dish. Um, but, again, it's just really hard to know um, how things are going to look. I think the sort of the fast food sort of stuff we – you know, people have been smashing it on delivery services and stuff, and that has a you know limited time to it. So I think people will be looking for you know artisanly made food, but that could be even you know like a pizza from Leonardo's. That's you know a, a amazing quality wheat uh, that's ground for flour to make the base with great toppings on top. You know, ethical food can be fast food as well. Um, you just have to make sure you you know that, and you know Nick at, at Leonardo's does a great job. With sourcing, like not that they would ever advertise it because they they kind of go for the grungy, you know, kind of dark rock and rolly sort of vibe. Um, and talking about the provenance of food doesn't fit the brand there. But if you know Nick and scratch the surface, he's doing that. Um, so those kind of places I think will continue to do really well. Um, but yeah, I think places that aren't doing the right thing that are just buying pre pre made things, you know, pre packaged things. I think they're the ones that will fall off first.
0: Matt, it's amazing to talk as always. Um, keep in touch and um, good luck with the butchery and look forward to hearing more about this circuitry as uh, as you evolve that, that part of your game. Absolutely, mate. Yeah, thanks for the
1: chat. It's, uh, it's a pleasure as
0: always. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.